Can a healthy lifestyle improve your life expectancy without Alzheimer's disease? Does time-restricted eating increase weight loss? What are the differences among different ethnic groups regarding Alzheimer's disease? And treating moderate to severe asthma in Black and Latinx adults. That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, since I celebrated Easter yesterday, really overindulging in lots of things that I ate, I'd actually like to turn to the New England Journal of Medicine to one of yours first and this notion of, hmm, what about timing of eating? It's been clear that for obese people, caloric restriction is really the mainstay of treatment for weight reduction. The unfortunate thing is it's difficult. The results are somewhat modest and sometimes not sustained. Well, there's been a great amount of interest in what's called time-restricted eating. And that is you only eat for a certain part of the day. It's like, for example, from eight in the morning till four in the afternoon, and you fast the rest of the time. And that's been shown to reduce weight as well. Does it have anything to do with the timing you eat? Or is that just because when you're doing that, you're restricting? your caloric intake. What these investigators did was to evaluate the efficacy and somewhat the safety of time-restricted eating. Is they took 139 patients who were obese and they randomized them to caloric restriction. They reduced their caloric intake to about 25% of what they were normally doing. That's half of them. And the other half, they did the same thing, but then they also restricted the time they took those calories in from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Did time-restricted eating improve weight loss? What they discovered was it didn't change anything at all. Both groups had the same amount of weight loss, body fat and body mass index, waist circumference, high blood pressure, diabetes were equivalent in both groups. And by the way, this study went on for a year. Caloric restriction is what reduces weight. It has nothing to do with when we eat. What about other parameters such as how did people like restricting the time during which they actually consume food? It's hard to know for sure because these are all individuals that were interested in being a part of the study. So they were self-motivated. What I can tell you was 85% of the individuals enrolled in the study completed it. So I guess we just can't get over the notion that we really have to pay attention to what it is we're eating. That is the calories. Now, by the way, I failed to mention in these individuals that did time-restricted eating, they did drink beverages afterwards during the fasting time. This shows the importance of watching what we're eating. Well, I think that we've spent a tremendous amount of time over these many years talking about ways to manage weight. And I guess I would respectfully suggest that if reducing the duration of consuming food for somebody during the day is helpful for them, that okay, why not? Absolutely. So what these investigators mentioned is this is a great alternative for individuals that have trouble reducing their caloric intake. So however one can best do that is the most appropriate way to reduce your weight. Since we're talking about healthy lifestyles, then let's turn to the BMJ. And this is a look at healthy lifestyle and life expectancy with and without Alzheimer's dementia. An interesting study from the Chicago Health and Aging Project. This part of their cohort was 2,400 plus men and women who were 65 years and older. They developed a healthy lifestyle score, and this was based on five modifiable lifestyle factors. 
a DASH style or Mediterranean style diet, late life cognitive activities, moderate or vigorous physical activity, no smoking and light to moderate alcohol consumption. So they just gave them those five factors and they said, what's your score relative to these healthy lifestyles? So they found that women age 65 with four or five healthy factors had from that moment, a life expectancy of 24.2 years, and they lived 3.1 years longer than those with zero or one healthy lifestyle factor. They spent about 11% of their remaining years with Alzheimer's disease, where women who had zero of those factors spent almost 20% of their remaining life with Alzheimer's disease. And then when we turn to the men, we find they also had a 5.7 year longer lifespan than those who had all those healthy lifestyle factors than those who had zero or one. They spent 6.1% of their remaining years with Alzheimer's disease versus 12% with Alzheimer's disease among those who had either zero or one of those healthy lifestyle factors. So what this purports to do is sort of settle this issue of, wow, does it help if we live longer, if we develop Alzheimer's and we have a longer period of time with that? Yeah. So Elizabeth, I thought this was a fascinating way to look at things because you're right. What's the benefit of lengthening life if we spend more of it either in poor health or with Alzheimer's dementia? It cut the amount of time they spent with Alzheimer's dementia in half. So you live longer, you're less likely to get Alzheimer's, and you're less likely to have years with Alzheimer's dementia. So it really speaks to the importance of these lifestyle changes. The one thing we didn't say is these are all healthy lifestyles. I didn't tell how long they've been doing it. But again, these things are all fairly simple things to do. And it implies that even if you start at age 65, there may be some benefit. Yeah, that was exactly the question I had. When do you have to start in order to reap these benefits? One thing that they did do in here also is they adjusted for all those other covariants that are a part of this equation, age, race, marital status, education, genetic risk factor, comorbidities. So it rendered these results slightly more powerful, I think. Yeah. And again, I want people to realize these are fairly easy things to modify and the benefit both in terms of duration of life, quality of life, and cognitive function, pretty substantial. Let us turn back to the New England Journal of Medicine. This has a study to do with treating moderate to severe asthma in Black and Latinx adults. And the reason why we concentrated on those is because they have a higher morbidity and mortality than Caucasians. Now, we know that maintenance therapy using a combination of inhaled steroids and a long-acting beta agonist called a LABA administered twice a day can reduce overall exacerbations, hospitalizations, and even death. What we don't know, however, is how do you treat those times where asthma recurs even in the setting of that? There are two possibilities. One is to use a short-acting beta agonist, or the other is, hey, let's take this therapy we're using twice a day, and let's just give another dose. And so that's the origin of this study. It's a large study of over 1,200 adults, about half Black, about half Latinx. Half of them, they said, do what you're doing. And the other half, they said, listen, take the same therapy you normally take twice a day and use that in times where you're having 
recurrence. They follow these individuals for over the course of about 15 months. What they discovered was that treating them with the same medication decreased severe or moderate asthma by about 15%. It also decreased hospitalizations. It decreased missed days from work, use of other inhalers as well in between the maintenance therapy. First time in African-Americans or Blacks and Latinx adults. Let's talk about compliance because compliance is an issue, I think, and a lot of these things that require people to scrutinize how they're feeling and then to respond to that before things get to a place where it's urgent. Yeah, compliance was actually fairly good. These are motivated individuals. I guess the other thing I would say is that if it's something that you've already got on hand and you don't need to have a special medicine hanging out just for rescue, it's probably gonna be better or utilized more often. Absolutely. You're using it twice a day already. You don't have to carry around multiple inhalers. You just take it with you and you know that you use it in the same way that you normally do. And so if anything, this should increase compliance, make it easier for individuals. We like things that make it easier. Let's turn finally to JAMA. And this is a look at race and ethnicity with regard to the incidence of dementia among older adults. And I didn't realize previous to this study that this was an area where we really didn't know very much. This is a VA study. It's among the Veterans Health Administration population, which is a defined population just because that's its nature. What they wanted to do was look at dementia incidents across five racial and ethnic ethnic groups and by U.S. geographic region. And so they had their whole huge cohort of older veterans who get care in the largest integrated healthcare system in the United States. So they had just a little bit less than 2 million participants, 55 years or older, evaluated between October of 1999 to September of 2019. They had self-reported racial and ethnic data. They also had their residential zip codes. Basically, compared with white participants, if you were an American Indian or an Alaskan Native, you had a higher rate of Alzheimer's disease. It was also higher for Asian participants, Blacks and Hispanics, highest for Hispanics and for Blacks. And in fact, the difference between whites and Asians or Native Americans was actually minimal. It was about twice as high in Hispanics and 50% higher in Blacks. What you have to remember is when we talk about Hispanics, there's a lot of different cultures, by the way. We, unfortunately, we don't know any more about that. The other thing we don't know is about, we know that dementia is tied to educational efforts, and we don't know anything about that. They tried to assess that by saying, what zip code do they grow up in? But we really don't know that. The nice thing about this study is it's large. Secondly is everybody receives the same healthcare. So that takes that out of the equation because we know that access to healthcare or access to diagnosis, access to controlling risk factors like hypertension and diabetes could contribute to dementia. And because they were able to look throughout the entire country, they were able to assess where there were regional geographic differences. And what they discovered is there's a little bit of geographic difference, but it didn't matter really what geography looked like. The story was the same for Hispanics and for African-Americans. Their risk was higher. Yeah. And some of the other things that they teased out, they did take a look at the cardiovascular risk factors and known associations with dementia. I found it really interesting that based on their data from the Indian Health Service, this association between hypertension and dementia was, it wasn't there. 
Yeah, populations, again, are very different. And now we need to look at, okay, what's the reason? Other than identifying the differences in ethnicity and race, now we need to try to find the reasons behind it. On that note then, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up.